It's not often that the world sees a living legend, someone whose work changes the landscape of their field before their very eyes. But that's exactly what we have in Bobby Masano. Bobby has been in the music industry for over 40 years as a guitarist. He has seen some of the biggest bands rise to stardom, and even knew some of the artists while they were just kids. His influence can be seen all over the world in bands like Metallica, Poison, Eric Clapton, and tons more. Bobby joins us for a special in-person interview to talk about his experience in music and how he has managed to stay not only relevant, but influential all these years. We hope you enjoy hearing Bobby's story on this episode of The Big Break. Bobby, thank you for, for appearing today on, on The Big Break. Absolutely uh, welcome. I'm glad I'm here, and I will be coughing all day. Okay. Well, fair enough. And, okay. and you're actually one of the few uh, guests on the podcast that we actually have the pleasure to see in person. Person. So now you, help me out, you live in Denver? You live part-time in Denver? Like, no, what's I live your, in Fort Collins. You live in Fort Collins? Yes. Oh, well, there's a big music scene in Fort Collins, actually. Yeah, so. it's actually very surprising to me. It's, it's, uh, I was saying that yesterday, uh, well, I was saying that was a... I was in Nashville on the weekend. It's very surprising. I mean, they may, they have they actually I think created a music district. They have there. a music district. They have, uh, yeah, they have a lot of good stuff going on. They have the new West Fest. They have uh, a recording studio there. They have a ra- great radio station there. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very very hip town. Uh, other than the trains. <laughs> I've never, I don't think I've ever heard Fort Collins described as hip before. But it actually, when you think about it, you know, you got the piece of music, you got the fat tire, new, you know, the New Belgium Brewing Company. Oh yeah. But we'll get to how you got to Fort Collins no. in a second. So we're gonna we're gonna there's, get in the, there are always escapes. There's always something, right? <laughs> we're gonna get in the way back machine though a little okay. bit here. So, um, well, first of all, before we even get to the origins, why don't you give us just a quick synopsis of. Who is Bobby Masada? You know why? Why are we talking with you today? I have no clue. no idea, <laughs> no concept whatsoever. It makes no sense to me. No, I'm like um, I, I yeah I, would, I, I was born a uh, a poor Italian child in New Jersey. <laughs> um, no, I, I I'm actually one of the uh, rare uh, people that I find these days that are like a mid level artist writer. Uh, producer player that is still doing it after 44 years 44 years yeah yeah this is you know 44 years of touring started in 1976 and you're a guitar player primarily yes primarily a guitar player any other instruments was it any other um i played bass on like seven albums uh and i'm really bad but you know really bad is uh only in your own mind so i've done some pretty good bass stuff on okay you know um but yeah you, and i'm a producer and mm-hmm. I, I i turned into a writer after years of realizing that writing is actually where you make your money you know and I, we can go to the first time i actually realized that later on but it yeah. was like a it was like whoa what's this so performer writer producer Guitar, bass, blues, Americana, this kind of thing. Blues, yeah. You know what? And it's strange because I, I started out. I had a um, the first oh uh, first let's say fourteen years of my career were as a rock 
session player and a rock touring guitar player. And that went to 1990. From 1990 till, until now, what's that, 29 years? Or uh, whatever it is, you know, or whatever, you know, 19 years, it, I've been a contemporary blues artist. Okay. And I was a conscious, an absolutely conscious change of sort of genre or change of career or genre. And I did that absolutely on purpose. But before that, I was known as, you know, this... You know, a guy that did rock sessions and toured. So. And what some of you just give me some of the big the big highlights. I mean, I got a, I got a, the bio here. I don't want to read the whole bio, but no. like you know, the the, the highlights it, for you. Anyway. Biggest thing for me is David Hasselhoff. Um. <laughs> that's that's missing from the bio. Oh <laughs> damn it! How could that possibly happen? Um, well, I mean, I got to split it up because, you know, it's sort of, just, it's sort of like almost Nashville y because, like in Nashville, you tour or you play in a studio, mm-hmm. you know. But this was, um, uh, I mean, I was with um, a lot of people. I mean, on the rock side, I was with, I toured with Lou Graham from Foreigner. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually played on uh, one of his albums, but all my guitars were erased, but that's another story. I was Steve Winwood's music director on the road. Okay. Uh, I played with Clarence Clemens from Bruce Springsteen on his record. I had the only solo actually on his record. Uh, <clears throat> there was an artist who was actually big in the MTV era named Fiona, not Fiona Apple, but Fiona Flanagan. Okay. Uh, who uh, had some a bunch of MTV hits. I did the. I mean, I was one of the guys that did the MTV theme song. That was me. That was me. And, uh, you know, and it was cool because I was doing... Well, plus, and then on the other side, I played with Gloria Gaynor. I did a lot of, a lot of people... I did a lot of dance records. I was a okay. session guy. Okay. You know, and back then, it was sort of cool because I was ushered into this session scene in New York City by all these amazing players, Huey McCracken and, you know, just people that were like slamming it and they sort of brought me into the you know in, into doing sessions so I worked with I, I was on a, a Peter Chris record I worked with you know Vinnie Poncio who was a major producer who had done Kiss back then and you know and that was like in the middle days in the early days I was in a band the, my big break hey this is the big break oh hang on to the, hang on to the big break here's part. the we'll big get, okay. break <laughs> the big break was I was a guitar player in New Jersey and I was saying to somebody yesterday when you were a hot shot guitar player in New Jersey one of your rites of passages was to go hang out with Les Paul at his house in Mawa and so a lot of the hot shots you know the good guys would go hang out with Les when I was 19 years old, Seymour Stein, who was, you probably heard the name from mm-hmm. Sire Records, mm-hmm. Craig Leon, who was the second command at Sire, okay. wanted to sign me as a solo artist. I was 19 years old, and I was scared to death, and I was playing with these guys that were like 30. Um, this was before, I mean, they had Climax Blues Band, they had... Um, a number of acts, but they hadn't started doing the CBGB thing. They hadn't signed Talking Heads. You know, they eventually signed Madonna, uh, and they became, you know, a, an amazing label for the scene at the time in New York City. But at, but when I was there, they were doing rock and blues rock and stuff like that, and that was like my entry into being into the big time because they were. 
you know, wooing me for quite a long time. I mean, so this is you've got a lot of interesting kind of components of the business here. I mean, you've got performing versus you know writing, producing. Yeah. You've got session versus training. I want to get into all of that stuff, but let's take a quick second. Let's, yeah. let's go back a little further. When did you first get interested in music? When oh, you when, I, when I was a kid. You when know, I when I, kid. yeah, my like mom. How? My mom was a singer. Your mom was a singer. Yeah, and she was a dancer, and she had a duo with my aunt, with my aunts, and they were okay. supposed to be on the Arthur Godfrey show back in you know the. 30s or 40s or whatever. So you were kind of born into it, pretty much. Well, sort of, but you know, my mom never really got a chance to do it. Okay. And it was really, really weird because I was an Italian, Mm -hmm. and they really frowned on, you know, you know, because of the business. It was always like, wow, you can't do that for the rest of your life, and. You, you know, gotta get a real job. Get a real job. Make yeah, something. You know, because yeah, I had an uncle that worked with ben, you know Benny Goodman or somebody, and he got yeah. screwed back then. And look what happened to your uncle Tom, you know. Yeah. And, I, and so uh, yeah, it was back then. You know, when I was in, in high school, I was playing guitar. Well, how did you get into guitar? Like, what? When did that? When did you start actually playing music? Well, Beatles. Beatles. You Seriously. saw them on TV. And- well, I mean, but before that, I was you know I was listening to the Four Seasons and stuff. I'm an old guy, <laughs> and and we'll get into some of the cool old guy stuff that happened that you can't. You know, that can't happen right. now, you know. But, yeah, Four Seasons and the Philly Soul stuff, and I would sing in, you know, church and, you know, do all that stuff. And it was really sort of, it just sort of happened. And then the Beatles came out. I freaked out. I wanted to be John Lennon. You know, I had a hanger with a harmonica on it, and yeah. I played, my brother played guitar and gave me, you know, I would take his guitar and play with my thumb. I couldn't play chords because my hands were so small. Okay. You know, so I would play with my thumb, and then eventually I would learn, I learned how to make chords, but I would duct tape my fingers to the strings. That's dedication. To, to, you know, with a book. Right. So that I could press it down, and I would have, you know, you know what happens. Welts and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, guitar is a strange thing. It's a painful instrument. Yeah, it is. You're sticking your fingers into metal, (laughs) you know, and then sliding it around and having the pieces of metal go into the tips of your fingers, you know. That's not fun. But yeah, that was the beginning of it. It was like really cool, you know. So you were doing it. I mean, kind of fun hobby, that kind of stuff. Kind of bring us. I mean, we could get get on and on and on. Oh, there's just too too much. At what point was it just um, something you did for fun uh, to something that you think you might actually be able to? to do and make money. Well, I mean, I always wanted to be, I always wanted to do it. I mean, you know, that's the dream of a lot of people. Sure. Of course. I mean, mean, and and, and I always say, you know, 99.5% of the entire world since the beginning of time would never be able to do this. It just doesn't happen. It's, it's dedication. It's, it's, you know, learning your craft. Well, especially back then, you really had to, and you know, and pushing forward and sticking to it, and that's an impossible thing to go through. It's, in life. it's a it's a it's a tall cliff to climb. So what I'm, that's what I'm trying to get is when did you when did you see that cliff and think yes I can scale that? Um, well, I mean, I was actually I, I, I had gone to college and for a, a minute, <clears throat> very expensive college in Maryland, and and taken and and started playing in this band back there that Paul Newman's son Scott was in and he, they had just kicked him out <laughs> okay. and I took his place and then we moved back to New Jersey it was in Maryland I went uh-huh. to school in Maryland and then we, I moved back to New Jersey we had a band house and we were writing all these songs and I said God I want to do this you know what was the name of the band? I can't remember you can't remember okay. no but it was all really great people a couple yeah. of them went on to do some major things sure anyone um, we know? Um, yeah one of them was a producer um 
If you don't want any names, that's yeah, okay. Yeah, you know, I have to go back and okay. think about it. Most things I can remember, this yeah. was like a, a very strange... Uh, it was after the drug-induced college life, you know. I understood. And I lived with a dealer in Maryland, so. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, yeah, I really wanted to do it, but I, I realized when I was back in New Jersey that it was really difficult to pay bills and write music and attempt to, you know, because we weren't doing cover songs and stuff. We were just doing... So I went to work for the post office because my father worked for the post office. Mm -hmm. And I figured, well, I guess I should make some money and, and do something. So I worked for the post office for a couple of years until I was... Uh, you know, sort of the same thing when, you know, you just, the, another gig. I just mm -hmm. went, I hate this. You know, I was working these really weird hours, but I was playing still, and I was actually playing in cover bands. So the, the, the working at the post office was giving you the income that allowed you to play the cover bands at night, basically, yes. to do what you wanted to do. Yes, except and then I would go from the post office, I mean, from the cover gig to the, you know, it wasn't for too long, but right to the post office. Right. And, and I actually just, at one point, I was so upset working that I just said I can't do this I have to it was pretty ballsy mm -hmm. I, ha I said I have to make a move here mm -hmm. so, and that was like in 1975 and what was the move the move was I'm going to look for people because I knew I did know people you know being a guitar player in New Jersey and being close to New York City so you know you sort of I sort of knew people and I had already gone through the sire thing, mm -hmm. so they were always there, sort of nudging and helping. And and I, I, I just said I can't do this. I, I, you know, I actually got fired from the post office, which is impossible. Right, you really got to make an effort. Absolutely impossible. Yeah. And then I went on unemployment, which is also impossible because I had a doctor that said he can't do this. He has to be on Valium or whatever it was. <laughs> you know. So, and I, um, I, I actually what I did was I searched. I said, who, what can I do? So Billy Joel was looking for a guitar player. I think it was either Dave or Russell was thinking of leaving. Henry Gross, who had just had been in Shanana, okay, and had a, a, this. He had a big hit single called Shannon. He was looking for a guitar player. Rick Derringer was looking for a guitar player. This is and you know the proximity to New York really helped. Mm -hmm. You know you can't do this when you're in Dubuque. Right. You can't do it when you're in you know Sarasota, Florida, unless you're part of the Allman Brothers scene. You know, and they weren't even really there then. So, right. and so then and then there was another band. This band, Stanky Brown. Stanky that, Brown. That was managed by this guy named John Shear, who who ran the Capitol Theater in Passaic, New Jersey, and when it was one of the biggest promoters in New Jersey. And he managed the Grateful Dead at the time, and he managed the Allman Brothers. And this is a cool band. They were on a label. They were on Sire, okay. actually. And Sire went to them and said, listen, Bobby's the guy. So let's go back quickly to the to the Sire component, because yeah. that was the real, the real big pivot point. So before you got hooked up with these other folks, it was it was sire. So, so what was the initial contact? Well, the there? initial sire contact was, uh, you know, we, we, we would we would all shop demos. Mm -hmm. So I had sent sire, I guess, demos at the time, and they freaked out. They loved it. You know, they they loved my voice. They loved the songs. They loved my guitar playing. And at the time, it was sire, and it was, oh God. I still know another some label? of these. It was another label. It was the one that had bad company, Swan Song. Okay. Yep. Yeah. It was. It was Peter Grant. Was that Peter Grant? The thing. I yeah. It, it was Swan Song, but they were sort of talking to me at the same time too, you know, because they had bad company and they had. I think they had Zeppelin at the time. It was like sort of they were very associated with Zeppelin. Mm -hmm. So that's what happened. I guess I must have, you know, you send your cassettes out at the time and somehow, 
it made it through whatever it was with them throwing it in the garbage, which is they, what they did with everything. Okay. Or there was someone that said, you need to check this out. So this wasn't like a personal in, a personal... It was no, literally no, no, throwing no. that demo no. into the void no, that, that was, is the demo no, void. Back and then, it it was, yeah, it was just in the, in, in, in the pile with everything else. All right, so they call you in. You, you, get, you start a conversation with them. I'm sure there's some other little details along the way, but eventually this leads to them seeing another opportunity that they connect with. It was the Stanky you know, Brown thing. Yeah, initially thing. they wanted to do the deal, and then they... You know, pull back from the deal, and it's, they were we were involved with this for quite a while. Like probably what's, what's six, quite a while? Months, six months, yeah, six yeah, months, maybe. It was okay. it was a while, you know. And then they finally went, oh, we don't know if we're going to do this. You know, we really like you, and blah blah blah. So, you know, then the next thing was they talked to John Share and said, this guy is really great. We almost signed them, and it would be sort of neat to have them in one, one you know, a band that's already on the label. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what happened. You know, so the John's office called me up and and said, you know, do you want to come in and audition? And I went, uh, yeah, sure, okay. You know, I could do that. And you know, and the other things that had happened, it wasn't, you know, nothing really transpired. And I went and auditioned for them. And I'm like a, you know, I go in prepared. You know, I learned like everything that they were doing live. I learned vocals. I walked in and I, and I went, what do you want to do? And they went, I don't know. You want to do a song or two? And I went, ah, right, let's. Do as many as you want. And when you want me to sing, and they were like, sing. And I went, and they went, I went, yeah. So we'd rehearsed, and we, we, you know, or did they audition me? And they went, wow, you want to be in the band? And I was like, okay. And they said, could you, you know, can, and there was another thing that happened later on in, in Nashville. It was like almost the same kind of thing. And they said, okay. And then, you know, a week later, I was off unemployment. I was making $200 a week or $125 or whatever it was with health insurance, you know, from, from John Share and Monarch Entertainment, and I, w- I went on the road with them. So you're in the band and you're on the road with them, and, you, and you're, so now you're touring. Well, actually, and the first thing was I literally went from working in the post office mm-hmm. to being in the back of a box truck on a mattress on top of road cases going to a show in Pennsylvania, and the guy driving, who I'm still friends with, was, was a guy named Bert Holman, who went on to manage the Allman Brothers for the last 25 years, and he was the front of house guy and our road manager. And we went and did it. The first show I did, and I tell a story all the time, was opening for Kansas, who I had just seen like a couple of times like the year before. Uh-huh. And I saw them opening for Queen. That's another thing that's happened. I'm I'm really good friends with Brian May now, but oh, we'll, you know and and, and um, you know, I went and opened for these guys and I remember sitting in, you know, catering. What do I know about catering? I'm a guy that worked at the post office, you know. And I'm sitting there like scared to death at Bucknell University in Pennsylvania, going Oh my God, I'm opening for Kansas. And Kansas walks in, you know, and Steve Walsh goes, Hey, you're the guitar player that was in that band that was, you know, that's opening for us. And I went, Yeah. And he went, God, you sound great. And then Kerry Livgren walks over and they're like, Hey, want some chicken? And I'm like, Oh my God, <laughs> Kansas is asking me if I want chicken. <laughs> so, how are you dealing with that? I mean, again, you're just out of the post office, you audition for a band, now you're on the road and you're meeting all these. I mean, how do you keep that together without, well, yeah, you know? But you, you know, there was sort of like this inherent, you know, you sort of, I don't want to say that, you know, certain people sort of gear themselves into becoming, I don't want to say famous, but I want to say part of the, the entire piece of the industry that's at that level. And 
And, and what you have to do, if you, I mean, I know a lot of people back then, and I still know people now, youngsters, oldsters alike, that you sort of gear yourself into when you're in that situation, you know that you're, in Nashville, they call it germs. A germ is a person that's like, oh my God, yeah. you know. But when you're in the situation, if, if you're really gearing yourself to becoming a pro, and I tell people this now all the time still, mm-hmm. you have to walk into a situation. And if you're, like the other night, I mean, I went to a party, Robert Plant was supposed to be there, and you know, he wasn't, but there were other people that were there. And I was just like, hi, how are you? Because you have to be one of them. Got it. So there's there's getting the opportunity, but then there's keeping the opportunity. Keeping the opportunity. So let me kind of just break this down for a second. So getting the opportunity was just basically doing the legwork. It was right. just it was just throwing right. it out it there, was, and hoping something. Setting so you, yourself you got a little up bit to of try luck to get there. there. Right. A little oh, bit yeah. of luck on that one. Absolutely. Okay? But then once you got it, it's like you use a sports metaphor, like you know, act like you've been there before. Right. It's like being you know like when you get in the game, you're in the game. Right. So you have to sort of just be one of them. Right. You know, and, and if you don't do that, you put people off. Very much. You, you really do. You can't be like, oh, my God, can I have your autograph? Yeah. I never, ever, ever in all of these years have ever asked anyone for an autograph. Because when you're in there and you're part of that, you have to be one of them. You're a peer. Right. Are you a, are you a, are you a musician or are you a fan? Right. And even if you are a fan... Being a peer is much better because then they take you seriously. Okay. And they understand that you write and you sing and you play and you you're one of us. You know. I mean, a perfect example. Well, I, dig- I, I I don't digress. I digress the opposite way. <laughs> was like when I met Eric Clapton. Mm-hmm. You know, I met Eric Clapton with Steve Winwood, and it was just like, hey, how are you? You know, nice to see you. You know, and he looked at me and went. I know who you are. And I went, I literally went, no, you don't. <laughs> and, and he went, yes, I do. And he named like seven albums that I was on that he had. That's funny because, I mean, it, it, so, because where you are in the, in the industry, you're, you're talking with folks that pay attention to that level of detail that maybe yeah. the average quote-unquote fan might not. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like, they don't just listen to an album and say, hey, that's, so, that's you know whatever band name's album, yeah. they're going to say, okay, that's that album, but they're going to know who the performer on each different yeah. instrument is. They're, they're, they're paying more attention. Right. Are you performing knowing that that's happening? When, when you're doing that work as the insider in, in I mean, in as, business, a, as a me now, sort well, of? Even or? then. Even then. Is, is, are you, did you know that? Did you know that people are paying attention to that level of detail? I, you later to make on, sure I you're found out, out about it. Okay. Yeah, later on I found out about it because, you know, I had a... A fan on my first solo album, which was actually a rock album from England, that I was bored writing the lyrics. I was at the point of like, you know, and I had the whole record done and I just wrote this song and I had pieces of everything that I had done in my life as part of the lyrics. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you know, I I I played with Flanagan's, uh, you know, no, I played with Brannigan's, you know, sung with Flanagan's because I was with Laura Brannigan right. and this guy from England. I had a fan club at that point. I had a you know PO box sent me the breakdown of every line, and I was like, oh my god, this guy actually paid attention. You know, even this morning I had some guy on Facebook because there were a couple of these bands that were turned into. You know, bands that you wouldn't realize had that much of an influence on people, but they actually did. You know, it, it was just so strange to see that. And this morning, I, you know, there was a couple of Fiona posts this week, and I put this thing. Oh, so great to you know 
to play on that record. And this guy went, oh my God, that solo you did on whatever song was probably one of the best solos ever played on a record. And I went, and so I found that out later. Mm-hmm. That these people paid attention. Everyone, that's really interesting. So, so there's a couple of really cool lessons coming out of this. You know, we, we talked a little bit about acting like you belong there and doing your thing, and then you kind of start to realize that not just the fans, but also the other the other artists, your peers, yeah. are paying attention to what you're doing. It's not yeah. just paying attention to how you're acting, but actually how you're delivering. Yeah. You know? So okay, so you're so you're with the band. You're, you're doing a lot of touring. What what was the next step? Um, well, the cool thing with Thank You Brown was because of John Cher. Mm-hmm. They had there was a lot of reach. We were, we were, we were uh, the agency was Paragon, which is, uh, oh God, I can't remember his name, but he ended up managing Stevie Ray Vaughan. Okay. They were out of Atlanta. So we were on the road with the Almond Brothers. We were on the road with, you know, Wet Willie, with Dickie Betts, with all these Southern rock bands. I mean, I became friends with all the guys in Boston because we opened for them the night before they played Madison Square Garden for the first time. You know, and Brad Delp and I, God bless him, you know, uh, became really good friends over mm-hmm. the years because of that. And so it was this re- it wasn't just like an entry level thing. This is something that can never happen now. And I say this a lot, and this is not being a jerk uh-huh. or uppity, uh-huh. but what I've done in my life, and I, Steve Lukather is on another scale, but he's a really good friend of mine, but you can't do now. You can't play on 67 D records doesn't happen you know it's just not the industry is not the way it was so what so i guess first of all explain the benefit of that and then what happened what, what's changed with us well the benefit of it was that you were you know you had a chance to be on everything you know i could play on a gloria gainer record you know later on after stanky brown mm-hmm. because i could do you know funk stuff i could play with a steve winwood i could play on the heaviest thing ever and those are the benefits. You got to play on like everything. And then this is the session work now. Yes, this is the session okay. work and the touring work. Well, right. So, so, so that's that's interesting. So, why don't you explain this for a minute? This that that environment for, for folks that might not really understand what we're talking about here. So, there's there's the bands that we've all heard of. The bands they have these bad members, but they often right. have other people either in the studio with them or on tour with them. Right. Sort of. I don't know what the right way to put it is. I don't want to say supplemental, but it's like they, they need more than just these four right. people that you've heard of or something like that. How does that work? How does that come together? Well, I mean, they're just, I, I always call them the, the, you know, the guys, the people in the trenches, but they're just extras that are, in, you know, that go play. So how, but how do you get those jobs? Is there like a well, job it, board? It, like, back how? then, it was all word of mouth okay. or, you know, I would get, you know, I would get calls from people and I would be like, huh? And they would go, yeah, yeah, I was talking to so-and-so and they said, call you and you should come in and do this. I mean, do you have like an agent? Like, no. Like, so it's literally okay. So I like the way that sounded. I want that sound for my thing. Who's the guy that did that? Yeah, that, and they and, find you. Yeah, and that's what would end up happening. They would find you because you would either be union or you would be, you know. And again, the proximity to New York made a big difference. Okay, so there's a community involved. Yeah, big, big, big difference. You okay. know, and then I became involved in the whole LA thing, and I would go to London and do sessions and stuff. You know, but yeah, but it they, would, they find it, you. It they would find you, and it was actually really hip. And not, you know, they would find you, and you would turn other people like. You know, I mean, a, a case in point is I was, you know, again, I, we should go into songwriting at some point. Yeah, but, no, 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 go down. This is, but this this is, is so, it's yeah, such this, a cool thing because. Well, how regular are we talking about here? Is all it the once time. a week, once a month? No, like, no, uh, no, I was doing sessions four or five days a week. And, okay. then, and then I would, you know, maybe even more. And then I would finally go to the point, I would get to the point where like, God, I want to go play live. And then I would pick up a tour. 
Okay. You know, someone would call me and say, hey, Lou Graham wants somebody. I would go, do I have to audition? They would go, yeah. And I would go, I don't want to. And I would go in and audition. I'd get the gig. You know, I mean, you know, uh, Daryl Hall. You know, I went I was supposed to do his tour. I was supposed to do... Uh, Oh, God, I love him. Colin Hay from Men at Work. Yeah. You know, I got that. And then I said, I don't want to do it because I'm waiting for a Lou Graham tour. Or you know, so I would sort of split it up because it would get to the point where I love having headphones on and it's really nice being in the studio and I meet all these people. Plus, I was writing a little bit more. Right. And I want this, and now we're going to get to the writing bit. So, but first, like, what did you, you were doing both the touring work and the session work. Did you have a preference? Um, I would split it up. I liked both. You liked both. Yeah. But one too long got old. Yeah, you know, I mean, and you know, the, the touring back then was, you know, I was making, you were making good money, $5,000 a week if you were with a big act. And were, you, were, you, were you making more from the touring than the session? No, I was a, I was a triple scale in session guy in New York, so I was making like okay. really good dollars when so I was doing So they were both, they're both contributing. Yeah. You like doing them both. Yes. You like the flexibility. I was comfortable doing around. both of them, which is okay. a rarity. Yeah, you know, because, I would imagine so. Yeah, because you have those people that thrive on the audience reaction, uh-huh. and you don't get that in the studio. But I would just go, you know, I would be able, you know, and I'm really fast in the studio. I still am. Uh-huh. I mean, Lemonade, we did in three days. You know, that's the way I work, because I'm so comfortable, and I love it, and I just say, here we go, and we do it. Okay. So, that, which was another good thing about, you know, me at the time, because I could end up doing whatever I needed to do because people would know if they had me come in I could do an entire record in a day and they'd save money but they would have great stuff and sure they'd pay me you know whatever it was 3000 a day or 2000 a day to do it but they would come out with really great guitar tracks so when do you start realizing that it's not enough just to play other people's music for them whether it's studio or live and when you want to start making your own um, actually from the first record I was on which was Thank You Brown 1976 mm-hmm. I, I had a song on that that I wrote Okay. and I had remember I had come from it's weird because I had come from being a lead singer lead guitar player you know major I was the sole writer mm-hmm. to being in bands not singing lead just playing guitar and doing background vocals, singing lead if somebody's voice went out, mm-hmm. and and not really writing. Mm-hmm. And you know, so I did one song on that, and then when I joined Stars, which is the next thing, mm-hmm. Stars was managed by Bill O'Coin, who managed Kiss. Okay, I went from Stanky Brown to doing a Stars album in Toronto, Canada, with Jack Richardson, who is to this day one of my favorite producers. He did the Guess Who. Okay. He did Kiss. Oh God, he was brilliant. Uh, and he became a knight in, in Canada before he passed away. But brilliant. And I learned all of these things with him. And then we went from that to literally going right on the road, opening for Rush on the Hemispheres tour. Wow. Ted Nugent on the Weekend Warriors tour. Um, and we were number one in Billboard when the record came out, I think. You know, because it was Capitol Records. It was all this main stuff. Mm-hmm. And I went from like... Being a cool player, I mean, you know, and Stanky Brown was great. Right. You know, I did I did the first night at Giants, the opening show at Giants Stadium in New Jersey, you know, with, with the Beach Boys and, <laughs> and Steve Miller. And, right. You know, and these were like things that could never happen. It was like dream, you know, your dream come true, mm-hmm. you know, which even at my age, you know, at 173 or whatever it is, <laughs> this is still a dream life. Yeah, you're still able to maintain doing it. And, yeah. And then that's definitely, how we're going to kind of close with some of yeah, that sort that's of cool. stuff. But the songwriting component that we're, t- we're talking well, about. Well, when, I, went, here, when so, yeah. I got into Stars, we uh-huh. went right in to do a new record. Mm-hmm. And I started writing with them. 
you know, and it was harder rock stuff, but it was, you know, poppy hard rock. Mm -hmm. But I started writing with them. So I had like two or three songs on the first star, that stars album which was great you know and in terms of the like so because these are different crafts i mean we, we yeah. see this all the time there's some people that can write a song there's some people that can perform a song there's few that can do both right did you i mean just, just as you started to get into the writing was it just did it just naturally come and it was no problem oh, yeah. was and remember i had been a writer before true i get it but as yeah. a writer myself every new you know as a not a songwriter but as a as yeah. like a journalist every story sometimes is oh yeah it's I like know. uh absolutely and know. i write little i write stories too so i know right. it's like it's, it's hard to you get the blank page no, that's, this that's, was, that's, Sort of, this was sort of good because it was they were all conducive to letting me write. Okay. You know, and then that band Stars. You know, even though you know that was another one of those things that we I learned a, a lesson of life. You know, with that, you know, you know, and owing money and you know owing millions of dollars that you didn't know you owed. And you well, know. explain that. What do you mean? Well, you know, like when I signed with the band, they were getting I was replacing another guitar player, and I had a really good attorney in New York City, and I was reading this, you know, I had contracts that were like 8,000 pages, so right. I had the Rocksteady one for the production company, I had the Capitol Records one, I had the one, you know, all these contracts, and I looked at my attorney and I went, what the hell does this mean? He went, you owe a million dollars. You owed a million dollars. Yeah, you owe a million dollars when you sign this. To the band. To everybody. To everybody. And I went, why? And he went, that's the way this works. And he said, and, and, and you want to join, then you take over the debt. So you're taking I'm very confused. I was taking the debt over for the person that I was replacing. It's like a company buying another company that's in debt. They now assume the debt as well. You're so going to you assume the debt. So you can figure either they're going to be a huge band and you're going to make millions of dollars or it'll vaporize and you won't ever have to worry about it again. And I went, oh, well, you, want, you want to be in the band? I went, sure. And he said, well, then sign it. Was that a good decision? Uh, yeah, it actually was because it did vaporize. Okay. You know, we did find out later that we had sold enormous amounts of records way past what Capital had told us. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it was one of those typical, if you didn't pay attention, now I pay attention to everything. Yeah. But we didn't know. You know, sure. and, th and they had already had four albums out and they had done fairly well and they were all over the place opening for everybody and, you know, fairly popular. <coughs> And their popularity, not to, I'll interject yeah. this real quick, their popularity, I found out later on, was way beyond anything that I had ever expected or thought of. Uh -huh. Because Metallica literally said there would not have been a Metallica without stars. Uh -huh. All the Poison, Bon Jovi, who I knew, John, I met John Bon Jovi uh -huh. when he was 17, sweeping floors. You know, and Tico from Bon Jovi was my partner for five years. But they all said there were like five bands. I mean, Poison, Motley Crue, uh, all these other, you know. Influential bands. They said this was the most influential band that we ever heard, and that's why we were here. And I never knew that until later. That's really interesting. It's really strange, you know. So, but so the it, the, but the depth was of writing. It was the writings, and that's when you like that's when you realize that you're able to keep. Yes, because we were talking and about I the capital get, side. In fact, I just yeah, I just got some money from they had so you know the cat, back catalog was sold to I don't even remember, remember Richie Rano called me, but you know I just got like a thousand dollars just for back catalog from forty years ago, you know. So I'm like, okay, yeah. that's cool. Because yeah. you were mentioning that the, you got to pay attention to things. Capital yes. was saying they, that you didn't, they you sold more than you thought you did. But that's, that's the sound recording side. On the, yeah. it seems to be a little more. Uh, you tell me, is, is, it, is it easier on, on the publishing side in terms of getting what you're owed, or is it the same Well, you just, again, attention? you have to pay attention. You have to see what's going on. I mean, I own all my own publishing, except, mm -hmm. you know, like with you guys, I leased, 
you know, and which is okay because I was back catalog leasing and it was great, you know. Mm -hmm. But I now own all my own publishing, and okay. I, I, you know, and I don't, I don't give it away unless it's for a reason or it's not going to affect me, you know, right. or, and it's good for me. Lessons learned along the way are for sure. Like, so tell me if this is too large of a leap, but from stars to your solo work, yeah. Was that was that the next step, or was that happening in the side as well? Like, how did no, that? No, I was I was continuing to do session work, and I played with Steve Winwood on the road. Right. And I was still doing records, and actually, mid '80s, I started writing a lot uh, for other people, and for my so first solo album. And you know, and I was writing most of it by myself. Well, what's that like? So that's interesting. So you've been you've been performing and and so touring and, and session with other people. You've uh, you've writing songs that you're performing yourself. What was it like writing a song that you didn't actually perform? Because that that's that's the real outlier. It feels like. <laughs> well, you know, like when I first started writing back then for, you know, what would have been, you know be my first solo album, which was a rock album. Mm -hmm. I was like, it was like I was writing. It's different writing than I write now. It was it was writing parts of my life with things that I would think, you know, it, it would be good for radio and good for people to listen to, which is the way a lot of, I don't want to say formula writers write, but a, a way a lot of people write because they want to make money on their, on their music and their songs. Mm -hmm. So you have to write, I, I would write things that I wouldn't write now, and not that they were bad, but they were just geared towards the listening audience, and because they would be geared towards the listening audience, they would be geared towards making royalties on it from airplay and stuff. Okay. So, so you're writing to the whatever the format. It's a yeah, commercial. Right, right. It's a commercial it, exercise it, on our. I, I, I don't want to say like you know like Katy Perry does not write like that. Katy Perry writes her life, mm -hmm. which is really cool. But people that write for Katy Perry write. Songs that they, you know, I mean, like Fireworks is hers, but, you know, they write songs that they know are going to be on the air and are going to make money for everybody, right. and they don't necessarily, and they're not, it's not that they're shallow, it's just they're geared towards the there's audience a certain of listening. Formula. We know it works. I right. mean, there's some great books out there that talk about all right. of this that are really fascinating to right. read. And, and, and there's a big, there's a huge difference between writing that first record, uh, which was geared towards the listening audience uh -huh. and then geared towards making royalties from it mm -hmm. to writing after that when I went into my contemporary blues land. Right. Huge difference. As a growing artist or songwriter, keeping royalties coming in is important for keeping the bills paid. It's also important to keep an eye on those royalty payments. A lot of people we worked with here at Royalty Exchange were having a tough time making sense of the royalties that were getting paid. So we built a free tool called Know Your Worth that automatically analyzes every royalty payment made on your music. It breaks it all down in an easy to understand analysis with some insights that would be impossible to find elsewhere. Plus, it connects you with the thousands of investors on Royalty Exchange and allows them to make you offers on your music. So far, musicians have raised over a million dollars for new projects, new ventures, and a whole lot of other things just through the Know Your Worth app. If you're earning royalties, you should be keeping track of them, and Know Your Worth makes it easy. It only takes about three minutes to connect an account, and the tool will automatically update over time. Just visit worth.royaltyexchange.com or find the link in the show notes to get started. Now, let's get back to the interview. 
did one need to come? Did you have to do that first before you could go to what you wanted to do? Did you need to write what you knew was going to sell? Well, it wasn't you needed. You it was write? just it was. So I had to because that's what you know. It, that's what was warranted for the record. You know, okay. I would never write a song called "Ready to Rock Tonight." You know, now, <laughs> you know, but it was a really cool Bon Jovi kind of song on my first record. Okay, you know, "You and I Are Forever" was a you know this really great song that people ended up you know, and this was a record that you know the first record didn't really do anything. Anything unbelievable, but it, it it got rave reviews. It was on tons of rock radio stations. I was on MTV with the video, and you know it was a it was a whole different thing. You know, it's just a whole different way of approaching what you were writing, and um, you know, and it was cool, but it wasn't necessarily what I would you know what I would do now. Unless, right. you know, even when I was writing, I would be writing for someone else or with someone else now. I, I always go, what are you feeling? What do you want to write about? What do you think that you want to tell people as opposed to, you know, what do the people actually want to hear? You know, what do you want to tell them? Right. This, right. Yeah. yeah. This, this was the time of, you know, you know, slippery when wet and stuff yeah. like that. And yeah. it was like, what do they want to hear? What's going to sell? That's going to make them jump up and down and, and, you know, scream in an arena. Right. So, you know, it was a big difference. Well, that's one of the things I like exploring with this podcast is the idea of that there's, there's always this sort of balance between what you have to, well, let's use it from the writing standpoint, but it could be really anything. You know, writing what you want to write versus writing what you for lack of a better word, have to write. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, and they have to support each other. Like, this is a business at the end of the day. Right. You have to pay your bills. You have to and pay you your have bills. To, and especially if you're a songwriter. You know, if you're a songwriter, you need to, you know, be able to st- sustain your life and pay for the kids if they need food or your car right. payments or whatever. That This is, you know, it, you know, it, it's not, you know, I'll do anything for rock and roll. You actually have to live. Well, it's, it's the, it's the, it's what sustains that right. career or that lifestyle, and, well, and, or and that's, that that's is. what I was saying before that like ninety nine point nine percent of the world or ninety nine point five percent of the world mm-hmm. can't sustain it, so they have to go back to working at Seven Eleven or being corporate or, or the doing post whatever. Office. They, yeah, or the post office. Right. You know, the whole thing is just to try to set the whole thing up to work for you as a living. So when did that become clear to you throughout? I mean, you, you've had so many really interesting components of your career, more than most people that I speak to. I mean, it, it's, it's almost hard to ask you the questions because there's like three well, different questions Well, I know, there's, there's so thing. much information. There's so much there. So when did that sort of become clear well, to you? Well, probably how- around the time I started writing for that record. Okay. You know, for the, for the Misano record. Which okay. Is, you know, and again, I just had that re-released last year because this label in North Carolina called me up and said, do you realize that this is like a cult Classic, right? You know, you had five stars in Kerrang when White Snake had four. You know, or, or you know, where people would send you things and say, "God, I used you and I are forever at my wedding." He said, "This is a cult classic," and I had released it once, re-released it once before. But these guys did a great job in you know twelve all these pictures and a twelve-page booklet. And it was really cool, but I didn't realize it. But you know, that's when I said, "God, these are my songs." And, and I'll tell you a funny thing about paying attention. Mm-hmm. I had a guy that was managing me, and he was I, I had known him for a long time, but he was trying to change me over from ASCAP to BMI. And I had been, I'd been with ASCAP. In fact, they just, I was just in Nashville at NAMM, and uh, <laughs> they gave me a 25th anniversary pin at ASCAP. Oh, nice. And we did all these pictures, and I went, but I've been with ASCAP for 40, for 40 years, and I went, I'll live another 10, we'll give you a 50. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, good, I can do that. But 
I realized at the time because I was getting airplay. Mm -hmm. I mean, on major. Right. I, you know, that's another thing when I realized that you have to pay for things and you have to. I was hiring all my own. I was with Relativity Records, mm -hmm. <clears throat> but they weren't really putting that much money into it. And I, so I hired all my own radio guys. And, promo guys. You know, promo. You know, AOR promo guys. Right. And people go, you know, how come you never have money? And I go, well, I don't know too many people that have to spend $15,000 a week, you know, for your radio stuff, which is what I did for six months. You know, I ran out of money working my record. But the change never happened. With, he never changed me over from ASCAP to BMI. And I didn't really want to change to BMI because I loved ASCAP. I had been with him from 76, you know? Mm -hmm. And I lost all of the royalties, everything, from that record on the airplay because there was no, nothing was registered with ASCAP because he was trying to do a BMI changeover mm -hmm. and he never did it. And so everything got lost in the between. Got lost in the shuffle. So one of the things, before we got started, <coughs> we were talking a little bit, and, and I think this is a good time to bring it up, is yep. that there were certain things that you sort of missed about the way the industry was back then that that that's still there now but it's, it's less so you know having the support of a label having the support of a pro right you know we, we still have all of that now but it, it seems to be lessons a lot of folks kind of trying to do right. their own thing you yourself were, were doing your own thing for all because your label wasn't supporting right. to the degree that they that you that you needed them to so maybe just talk about that just a little bit in terms of you know what are the things that that are that an artist can be you know can do well, very well in the, uh, themselves which is what are the things that are sort of nice to have that's well support? i mean newer artists have the social media thing down for sure well, the thing that they have to avoid with any you know but everybody still wants to be on a label as much as it's a sign of of success it's right. a sign i mean of, i'm on a warner of, of i'm on a warner brothers label now okay you know, i'm with warners but the thing is is that you know, everybody's doing 360 deals, and I keep saying, if you hear the word 360, you walk away. Right. You just walk away, because you have what they, if they want you, and they're going to do a 360 deal, they're going to want you, and they're going to give you a deal without 360. Do not do it. But back then, one of the things that was really good, and was also bad at the same time, because you were in debt, was that the label was the bank. Right. The label would, you know, like now if I want to go out and support Lemonade mm -hmm. and I want to bus and I want to go play shows and not necessarily make money, which nobody makes money anymore anyway, because venues are like disappearing, you know, uh, but they would bank you. Mm -hmm. So if you came off of a, you know, three months on the road on a bus and you owed them $100,000, that was a small price to pay to get into markets, to have people go to the record store to buy your stuff, you know, and open up a new market to be able to go back to later. Mm -hmm. And if you became successful, the 100000 didn't matter. It was, just, it was promotional costs. Was promotional I mean, like, you costs. were making the money to what you, whatever you could actually make after costs from right. the tour. The label didn't make any of but that, the but they looked at it as selling the record. That, you know, and that was that whole artist development thing that doesn't happen now. Right. Because nobody wants to put any money into anything. Right. You know, because they can get anything they want pretty much for free. You know, we could talk about the Napster stuff and the Flack stuff and, oh, God. Um, you know, but that was one of the things that is truly missed with major labels. And one of the things I did see when Lemonade came out, which was in July, within, I would say within two hours, it was on a Flack site. It was on an illegal download yeah. site in Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. And we, every artist, you know, again, I'm a nobody, sort of, but I'm a well-known nobody. 
you know, if you do a web search for me, it's 100,000 hits. That's your next like, album. Well, no, no, no. Actually, somebody's writing a book called, he's just a guitar player. Uh, um, you know, but the thing is, is that within seconds, that was up there. Yeah, it's like that. And one of the things that I was always angry about is that I could never do anything about it. I would, you know, years ago I would offer, you know, I would send out emails with cease and desist and, you know, and everybody would go, it's not doing anything. Yeah. But being with Warners, immediately they issued a takedown of the website. So every time, like every weekend now, we scan, we find where the flag sites are and Warners issues takedowns. Because they're big enough to be, you know, granted, it's going to be back up in 15 minutes simply in Czechoslovakia or wherever else. Mm -hmm. But it's sort of a little bit of a respite where you can, they can pull it down and maybe you can have a couple sales. You know, because whether you think it happens or not, there's a lot of sales that go on with, and downloads of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I used, to, I used to teach at School of Rock, and I, would, and I would talk to my kids, and I would go, they would come in with some new song, and I would go, did you download that? And they would go, yeah. And I would go, and, I, and I would, they would say, what? And I would go, if you want to do this for a living, I said, I go into the studio, and I don't do this, I don't do it in my house. I go into major studios with major musicians and make major records, and that doesn't cost, you know, a penny. I said, so every time you download that thing, that's money that I need to pay back the money that I did my record. How would you feel about that if you went to, you know, you're still working over at uh, wherever you're working, and you go in and then somebody stole your money from your work? Right. So that's the problem with that. So how do you feel about the state that we're in now where, um, with the streaming uh, component of things? I mean, obviously sales are, of all kinds are, are, are falling. Yeah. But it's replaced in activity at least by streaming. But sort of. But not necessarily by... Yeah, um, the prices aren't the same. I mean, sure. you know, for me, I make more money on, I'm, you know, has nothing to do with you guys. Cause, right, right, right. But I mean, XM, I'm on XM constantly. And I make enormous amounts of money on XM. So having that... Uh, because they actually pay. Yeah, no, they actually pay. They have to. They're, they're, they're in a much different uh, you know, right. place in the licensing spectrum. But they also have that, that depth of, 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 of niche channels. Oh, yeah. Niche, but you know what I mean? Like they'll, they'll, they'll play... You, you could find something for anything on, on, yeah. on XM. Yeah, I mean, and I even make money. Like I played on the Benny Mardonis record Into the Night that was a big hit in 1980. I make royalties from that. Right. You know, just as there's a musician's fund that they pay into. I, I got to ask this. What, what's your favorite XM channel? Uh, well, you know, uh, see, I'm supposed to say Bluesville because I'm always on it, but I'm not always, I don't always listen to it. Um, believe it or not, The Bridge. The Bridge is a good one, yeah. Because the, the songwriting on The Bridge is what I listen to. And I'm supposed to be listening to, like, you know, Guitar Land. Mm -hmm. And I just love listening to the melodies and all the songwriting. Uh, Bridge is probably number one. Uh, and I have it in, like, every vehicle that I have. <laughs> I mean, right now I'm on the Christmas channels. So of course. Because you're, know. I mean, you you're not getting enough of that anywhere else. You have to <laughs> you have it in your car. <laughs> I don't go out. I don't go to malls and stuff. So I just bought a new uh, a car this summer, and it came with a sub uh, trial subscription, right? And I wasn't planning on keeping it at all. Because I, I have my phone, I do the Apple oh, Music account, I, and I stream I can't I live without it. This kind of stuff, right? <clears throat> Little Steven's Underground Garage. Oh, yeah, but I was on that. That 
slayed. Like there was one day where that was like, that's it. Here, I'm in because I, of that station. I was on the Underground Garage tour oh. because I played with the Shadows of Night. Okay, I did Gloria, uh-huh. and I produced their last record. Okay, and Jimmy Sons is actually still a really good friend of mine. We talk okay. all the time, and we did the uh, Underground Garage tour with the Romantics nice. and. Uh, Oh, Rocky, uh, what's his name from? Oh God, he was in this really cool punk band. It was seventy. It was two thousand six. We did it. Okay, it was really fun. And yeah. I've known Stephen from you know I knew sure. Stephen from the Springsteen days. I bet. Yeah. You know what else? Another another great one. Uh, Deep Tracks kills. Deep Tracks. Yeah. yeah. Deep Tracks is ridiculous. You know, but there were a number of you know I can't. You, you just named like my four or five presets, by the way. Yeah, guess. I have like seven. Okay. You know, and a couple of funk channels because I want to hear. You know, I'm gonna. Hear. I, just, I just had to ask that question because I was literally I drive down from the mountains on the weekends and and it's a, and the whole ride home is Little Steven and just listen to him and tell his story. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, we're getting way off course. Sorry. That's okay. But like that, that's the fun stuff, right? But you know, on the other <laughs> end, it pays it pays royalties. Right. You know, if you get on it, and that's a very difficult thing getting on it. I mean, mm-hmm. I. That's a that's a story. People get mad at me because I'm on like almost every day. On why on, is it difficult getting on it? Uh, I mean, is it, whose program is it? Is it how, how does that work? Is it is it there some some politics see, there? They're very or? corporate. There are only a few. I mean, there are only a few people that program. I mean, there's one guy who's a good friend of mine that programs like eight station, and he's inundated with stuff. And the reason I'm on it, I, I mean, I have been on Bluesville. Bill Wax started Bluesville with BB King in 2000. Okay. It went on the air on September 11th, 2001. Okay. So it went on the went yep. on the day of the attack. Mm-hmm. That from that week, Bill Wax was playing me. So I've been on Bluesville for 18 years. So once I've, you're in, you're kind of in. I've been ushered in through every program director for 18 years. Grandfather in a little yeah, bit. Yeah, like, and like I'm a grandfather on the <laughs> station. You know? So, uh, yeah, it's very difficult because you have to... But, I mean, you could get on. You just sure. have to have really good product and you have to, you know, get through... You know, like Southern Avenue, who are friends of mine that just they just got nominated for a Grammy in Contemporary Blues, young band out of Memphis, but they did it through. They're on. Um, they're not on. Mo- are they on Motown? No, they're they're on. Um, I can't remember. It's okay. one of the labels that came. Stacks, oh. maybe that came back up, but you could get on. Right. You know, and there's a lot of great channels. The Jam Band Channel is friggin' great. The Reggae Channel is great. Um, so it's just know. a matter of just you know. Getting it in front of the right people, just like you did back earlier in the career. I mean, you, you got to send it out. You got to send it out. Set it up. You have to get it out there. You have to work it and not give up with it. So I like to always. I, yes, there's luck involved, but there's the quote chance favors the prepared. You know that sort of thing. Like you got to you got to make your own luck to, it, yeah. to a certain extent. So you, like, I got to ask this. Yep. Yeah. So what got you to Fort Collins? Explain <laughs> that one. That, that's that's a road. That that's a road that that I'm sure there's a story behind. <laughs> oh God, I uh, I escaped to places. Okay. Know? So I lived in, I mean, I'm not going to do all of them, but I went to New Jersey to L.A., L.A. to New Jersey, New Jersey, New York. I was Mm -hmm. like five miles from New York. And then I went to London, and I came back to New York, and then blah, blah, blah. But I I lived in Woodstock, New York for years, Mm -hmm. um, which was really fun because, you know, everybody in the band, I was friends with the band, and, you know, everybody was still up there, and it was Dylan would come into town, and... You know, I would have breakfast with John Sebastian. It was really cool. Mm-hmm. And then <clears throat> I went from Woodstock to the south. I went to Virginia. 
went to Virginia Beach because my wife at the time wanted to go by a beach, and I, I'm a beach guy. Okay. So I ended up in Virginia, went from Virginia to Nashville, went from Nashville to Florida to Sarasota because I was friends with all the almonds guys, and mm -hmm. they were all down there. And I was going back and forth from Nashville to, you know, to Florida. And then I was on the road a lot. A friend of mine was on the road. He was a drummer, and he was up in uh, Spring Hill near Tampa. And said, oh, you know, come up with me. You don't have to pay rent or anything. And, you know, I haven't had a house in a while. And truthfully, I don't want a house. You know, I like the first year I was up here, I was on the road for 200 days. Yeah, I mean, A, you're on the road. B, you're moving around so much. That sounds like yeah. counterproductive. Yeah, I had a friend that was a major Highline roadie, you know, tour manager guy. Mm -hmm. And he had to buy two houses in the Hamptons so that he could waste money because he was paying like a billion dollars in taxes because he was never home. Yeah. But anyway, one day I came home and he said, I got to sell the house. And I went, oh. And he was on the road too. And he went, um, I said, when? He went like now. And I went, oh, that's not good. And we were both going back on the road and come back in a month. And I I had friends in Denver. My One of my producers, Joe Michaels, was in Denver. Okay. <coughs> and they had been trying to get me out here. And then my friend Kyle is, head of, is the president of the... Uh, um, on Colorado Blues Society. He said, look, okay. why don't you just come out here and, you know, check it out for a while, you know? Because I had thought about, I lived in London, I was thinking of moving back to London, but it's just so expensive, and mm. and I don't like New York, and Nashville's way too inundated, and I just came up here and I sort of dug it. I mean, I miss beaches. Yeah, I mean, you're a beach guy, you're an East Coast guy, you're talking, you know, you've made a lot of yeah, points but, about being in the right places. Yeah, but East Coast, I really haven't been there for, you okay. know, since 86 or okay. something, you know? But in terms of just that, like, you've already made your connections, so now you can, uh, uh, you have the opportunity to live wherever you want. Now, yeah. you, you don't have to be where you were before to no. be part and of those you're near a highway or a plane, you can go anywhere. Right. So, you know, but I just, yeah, I ended up in Fort Collins, and I, and I dig it. You know, I do miss, I just, I really, you know, I got friends that are like, come on, come to California, and I'm like, no, I'm not do it. It's going to fall into the ocean, there's fires. Do you, you like, know. play regularly up there or anything? Or no, like a, no, I mean, you know, the one thing that I've learned about living anywhere mm -hmm. is that you're never a hero in your hometown. That's interesting. You know, you never, you very rarely... You know, when I lived in Nashville, I never played in Nashville. I played with, I mean, I played with country people. Uh -huh. And I played with Rodney Atkins. I played with Jimmy Wayne. I, I was Alicia Elliott's musical director. I played with Steve Holy, you uh -huh. know. And, you know, and I was making more than most people because, you know, I was making five, six hundred bucks a show and everybody else was making a 200, you know. But you never, people don't always get you when you, it's not just me, I think it's a lot of people. You know, like even Colorado, I mean, how much has come out of Colorado? You know, Big Head Todd. Um, Daniel Ratliff is the next, is the big one now. There's like maybe five, six bands. Mm -hmm. Well, I was just kind of curious. I mean, if you live up there and you play, if there's something that you sort of just do. Well, um, I mean, decide, that's a problem, you know? too. I can't, yeah. you know, I get calls all the time to play, and I can't, I, I can't, I mean, like, you know, I'm doing my last show of the year. I'm leaving tomorrow. I'm going to to Lincoln, Nebraska for my last show. And it's like, you know, in, in the blues thing, it's just really small. You don't yeah. make any money. And, you know, I did. I used to do a lot more festivals and stuff. But I'm sort of picking and choosing now because not that I, you know, can afford or not afford to do it, but I cannot afford to walk out of the house for little money because it's, it's what's, you know, I mean, if I, if I made like five times that when I was, you know, in high school, why would I do it now? Do it now. Yeah, I'll absolutely. stay home and write and watch Netflix and you know, <laughs> you know 
I mean, you know, I really like my life, but I and I love playing live, mm -hmm. but I can't, you know. And I used to tell people that, you know, do not undercut yourself, you know, at all. And and there's this, there's a new there's a new model which would go along with. Oh, I wanted to tell that story yeah, too. Yeah, about yeah, the, yeah. I just wanted to get this. You know, but there's the, the black keys model. Okay. You know, and I, you know, and those that was do everything yourself. Actually, which was based on the Fugazi model, because Fugazi paid for everything, did their own shows, owned everything and became millionaires mm -hmm. without having to worry about anything because they did it on their own. Mm -hmm. And there's that model that works now. You know, and if you can get into that model, Black Keys, you know, the, the most, you know, the closest to that over the last 10 years, did it all on their own, you know? And, you know, the, you know Joe Bonamassa does it, you know? And, but, mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a, it, it, you have to do it on your own terms. And I, I'm but, but it also takes a lot of work. I mean, the, well, the reward is, is big, but so is the effort right. in, in, in beforehand. Right. And, it's you're not still like gonna, just... and, and you're still going to have promoters that aren't going to want to get you and stuff. So, right. You know, but, um, um, more questions? I, actually, I'm, I'm just asking you, anything, what, what's next for you? What do you want, anything, anything you want to um, talk about, promote? Well, we're working you know? Lemonade. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've got, you know, I'm, I'm going to, you know, January is going to be cool because I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to drive out to L.A., which I, uh, to Anaheim, go to the NAMM show, which I go all the time. I've got tons okay. of endorsements. Nice. And then I'm going and doing a Gary Kramer, who had Kramer, Kramer Guitars. Uh -huh. I was with them, and he's got a vineyard, so I'm going to play at his vineyard. Then I'm coming back down to L.A. for Grammy weekend, and I'm playing uh, the El Portal Theater on Friday, and <clears throat> just a couple songs, and then doing something at the Soiree on Saturday, and then going to the Grammys on Sunday. And then, um, and then coming back here, and then jumping on a plane and going to Negril, Jamaica, uh, to headline a festival on a, on the Sunday after the Grammys. So you know, then I'm supposed to go to New Zealand, but I don't know what's going on. Well, but I gotta tell you, I mean, it, that's that's great. Like you, you've you've got, you said 44 year uh, career, if I, if I remember the numbers, you know, correctly. You know, it sounds like you've been, you know, successful. May not be the success that people who get into it now. Think about when they think about success. Right. They all think about you know top of the charts, the right. millionaires. But you know, you've you've consistently See, to me, made to me the success has always been when I was 14 years old. I wanted to be in my 60s still doing this and having people know who I am. Right. And I have a Wikipedia page. I have that's this is exactly what I wanted to do. Right. Look, I've got a BMW. I've got a 2019 Equinox. I've had four houses. I've had a lot of the stuff everybody else has had, but you know, your success level is based on the people that you learn do you meet in the business and the longevity you have. The longevity, that's the it. The longevity is really important. Because if you really wanted to do that, and I say this to my friends, but I, I, I got to tell you this one story. Please do. That. But, you know, I always say to my friends who are all like, well, how come we can't get limos and, you know, private planes anymore? I go, no, we, you bought into this. This is what you wanted to do. Because, see, I always loved it for the note. I always used to say, I do this for the notes. Mm -hmm. I wanted to hit one note that would move 20,000 people. And I've done that a couple of times. And I wanted to, you know, like B.B. King, I would go see him and he would do one note and I would cry, Carlos Santana, you know, but they would write those notes into their songs and then they'd get paid for the songs. And that was really cool. You know, I was gonna, and I was gonna say, the first time I realized how important royalties were, I won a contest in 1990 on Blues Deluxe, which was this syndicated blues show out of Texas. Best, <clears throat> best unsigned, you know, blues act in the country. Mm -hmm. And about 
five months later, six months later, I got a check from ASCAP for like a couple thousand dollars for writer and then a couple thousand for publishing. I went, what the, f what the hell is this? <laughs> and I realized that because it had one play on a syndicated show, it was on 170 stations, mm -hmm. and they tracked every single one of them. And ASCAP was paying whatever they were paying at that point. I mean, now it's you know $25 for publisher and writer for points. Mm -hmm. But I got the points, and I went, "Oh my God, I have to do this more," you know. And 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 I had a great publisher who passed away a number of years ago. Brett Walker, he was great. He's really young too, but he got me on network TV, and I was getting. Quarterlies of five, ten thousand dollars from One Life to Live and and major you know shows on CBS and stuff. And I realized this is like, you know, talk about mailbox money. This is really mailbox money because you could sit home and make ten thousand dollars a quarter. I mean, I know people that make a million dollars a quarter sure. because you're writing these songs and the songs live forever. You know, you have. A legacy. The legacy is the songs and the stuff you put down on tape, which or, or whatever, and that'll never go away. Right. You know, and and and, and I'll tell you the la this is the last story. Yeah. And I know we're probably over time, but oh, it's okay. I wrote this song when I was going through my first divorce. It was for my first record. I was on Ichiban, which was EMI, big label at the time. You know, they're driving and crying. They had crisscross. They were, you know, they were selling a lot of records in a bunch of different genres, but they had a lot of different labels, you know. Mm -hmm. But I wrote this song when I was going through my first divorce, and I was on the road. I was carrying a, you know, recording gear with me, which is, you know. He's putting his hands very far apart. I had one of those Tascam 12 tracks <laughs> that did it on tape, you know. But it was cool. So I was writing stuff, and I was managed by Willie Perkins, who had managed Greg Allman, and mm -hmm. he was with the Allman Brothers in the beginning. And I wrote this song in a hotel room because I was really depressed and I needed something for myself. And I wrote this song, it was originally called Drowning in a Sea of Hope. And I went, oh my God. I said, I can't do that because somebody could construe that as, so I just changed it to Sea of Hope. And it was Take Me to the Sea of Hope was the lyric. And it was really cool lyrics. And I was very Clapton-y. And when I, I, I did a promotional tour with the demos before the, I recorded the record, because Ichiban said, go out and do, go do some blues shows. And I was at this one place and somebody went, you know, that's a perfect Clapton song. And I went, oh, wow. I said, that's, you know, it is. Because, you know, I love Clapton and yeah. he's one of my idols. And, sure. you know, I got to meet him and hang out with him. And, you know, so I called a friend. And I said, do you have anybody working on this new Clapton? I was a friend of mine at Disney out in L.A. And he said, yeah, actually we do. And I, I said, can I send overnight this to you? I said, I want you to hear this song. And they listened. They went, holy crap, this is like perfect for him. Mm -hmm. And they sent it. They called Eric and they said, hey, Bobby Masao's got a tune. And he went, send it over, you know. So they sent it over. And he loved it. And he demoed it. It was the Pilgrim record. It was in 1998, I think. And, <clears throat> but he didn't put it on the record, which was okay, you know. Uh, you know, because it happens, you know, but at least you had it there. You know, I've had stuff with Hard, yeah. I've had stuff with Robert Plant, you know, it happens. But I put it out on my record, and a couple of years later, I got an email from this guy, from Czechoslovakia, and he said, you know, they're, they're always so polite in Europe, you know, hello, Mr. Misano, my name is Sergey, or whatever it was, you know. And he said, um, 
He said, I got your record from my friend in France, and he said, it's just fantastic. He said, I, I love this record, you know. And I think it was, it was Holden Ground, which was a re-release of the original Dominion Roads. I was on another label, and we re-released it, remastered it. And he said, but I, I wanted to tell you something. He said, um, I was in a really bad way, and he said, and I was going to commit suicide. And I heard your song, and I felt that you were talking to me, and you stopped me. That's something. He said, and I want to thank you for saving my life. And I went, I, I didn't know what to do. Yeah. It was like, you know, I wrote a bunch of lyrics out and put it out on a, on, in a song because I wanted to save my life. Yeah. And I saved this guy's life, you know? And I said, that stuff doesn't happen, you know? And, and I always say to people, when you're writing songs, you know, think about who's going to listen to them if somebody's going to listen to them, you know? And that kind of gets down to that point you said earlier where like, there's the songs you write because it's what people want to hear. And then maybe if I could rephrase a little bit the songs you write that maybe people need to hear yeah and I think that's kind of what you did in that last you know and I was so surprised by that you know and I you know and I you know I got a number of different a couple on that same song over the years thank you for writing that you helped me a guy from England sent me like a a 5,000 pound check (laughs) because he was rich and he said I figured you could use this I'm like well, yeah, you know, thank you. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> and then, you know, and I, I thanked his solicitor and he sent me a Bible. And I was like, oh, that's nice. But, you know, it's really true because you, the words you write. And the, th- and, and, and the other thing is, is that you can't stop writing because you feel like you're not going anywhere. You're spinning your wheels. Because one thing that you write for yourself or for someone else could change the world change someone's world. Mm-hmm. It's really important, you know. I mean, it's really important, you know. And then I, and there's one other thing. I'll end it with this. Sure. I had all these friends for many years in this business that write songs, and they write great songs sometimes, and sometimes they write shitty songs. But they're so they're, they're so proprietary to the people that sometimes they don't let anybody hear them. Mm-hmm. Or they won't let something happen with it because they don't want to lose control over the, the their work, you know, over what they feel is a part of them that they put into a song and put on tape. Mm-hmm. And I call them the, the songs in the little plastic boxes because they're all over the world. And I know, what is it, 30,000 songs a week are generated right now, something I think, like that, or something? Yeah, yeah. It's absurd. And like 0.02% will ever get heard by people on the radio, you know, which is why I'm like completely blessed and mm-hmm. always thrilled about this. But one of those little songs in that plastic box could change something. And you have to realize that if people want to put it out or change a little thing on it or do something in it, it could change your life and that's a perfect place to stop because it's exactly where we started right yeah. you got your big break was basically you you put out those cassettes yeah you put them to the places where you thought no one's going to hear yep. it and they did and it turned things around and to yeah. this day it's the same thing it's it's allowing something to happen yeah i think that's probably the lesson that and we it's taking control here. of it and making sure you work at that yeah and that's really important so 
Well, know? Bobby, this has been a true pleasure. I really enjoy talking to you. I wish we had even more oh, time. I'm we'll good. do a part two someday, maybe. As, yeah, as I, I mean, I love area. doing this stuff. You That's know, I great. go in and teach classes and do some stuff. And I, you know, because it's really important. I mean, and you know, and and you know, to, and and the industry. I have this huge fear that within ten years, there's not going to be any real live music anymore, and and people just aren't going to care. You know, and that would just be like the saddest thing that ever happened. You know, because this is so important, you know. It really is. It changes it is this Hendrix phrase and you know, and you know, and I got to see Hendrix. I mean Yeah. Still to this day I just go I saw Hendrix and Joplin. Well if you're a guitar player and you see Hendrix. Well I saw him on the same night, Hendrix and Joplin. Yeah. You know, and it was like Yeah. And it's actually on YouTube, the show I was at. Which okay. Yeah. But you know, I mean it's really important and you know, I mean and there were like artists out there that don't, you know, that want to, you know, and, and, and there's so much shallow bullshit out there. You could, you could stop this when I'm here. You know, there really is. There's just so much horrible, disgusting, shallow bullshit out there. Well, it's short-sighted. It, it's, it's, for, it's, it's, the distant, it's the confusion between doing it for the money versus the money helping you do right. what you want to do. Well, you know, reasons. and I always talk about the rap. I'm, I'm a big non-fan of rap, right, which a lot of people are. But I was a huge fan of N.W.A., and all the original stuff that came out of L.A. Mm -hmm. Because there was a point to that. Mm -hmm. You know, that, they, they were making a social statement back then. You know, it meant a lot. Uh, you know, and now it's just like, you know, how many times can you say fuck at a thing or suck my dick? And, and it's like, well, what's the fucking point of that? Right. You know, even like, you know, it, it's, it, it's, it, it's just, uh, you know, there's a lot of really good deep stuff out there that people are writing and playing and you know and it doesn't <coughs> necessarily go anywhere anymore you know so how can people find you by the way if they want to like, oh, online ev everywhere. You, you're on you got a website I mean, you got, I'm you're on everywhere. I got a website I'm on every social media platform you know your handles is it at 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 Bobby Masano like what's the yeah well they, anybody it has to do is just do a believe it or not just do a Google search for for Bobby Masano with -S -S the correct spin I'm ESSANO and I'm like everywhere you know, I've been, you know, social media guy since the beginning. I mean, oh, I was that, on... That, that sounds like a whole other podcast we'll have to have. Oh, yeah, time. I was on mp3.com, you know, in, in, the, in the early days. Right. And they weren't paying initially, you know. It, it was just, you know, it was, it was cool. It was fun. And I was in between the Ichiban deal and... and, right. and uh, or maybe it was the Fishhead deal. Fishhead was with... Uh, Ichiban was EMI. Fishhead was with... Right. I can't remember. But, you know, I was... Um, you know, in the middle, in, the, in between them. And I was like, where am I going to get this out? So I put it on mp3.com. I was number one on contemporary blues for like a year. You know, I was in the top 10 with like 12 songs and number one for literally a year. And they weren't paying. And I was like, I don't care. The people were still hearing my stuff. And then they started paying, you know. But I was involved in the original IPO on that. And, you know. Yeah, there's a lot of you know. I I'm I'm a, I'm a geek. I'm like literally. I had a you know. I had an IT company, and you know when I was in Nashville, when I wasn't on the road. And well, I, I've got again. We, we these are all great stuff. I love great, great topics for for another one. I'm serious. We'll we'll do one in a, in a couple of months. Oh, that'd be fun. Yeah, maybe I, maybe it'll be easier drive when it's not so uh, so, oh, so terrible weather. No, it actually wasn't bad. I mean, okay. I, I, we had more snow than you guys, so yeah. you know it was like. And I and I came home yesterday morning. I'm like. The BMW was like, there was like four inches of snow, and I was like, what the hell is this? It was like, yeah, we got snow yesterday. <laughs> and I was like, and, well, this was great. It was great. Say goodbye to the folks. We'll, to be goodbye. continued. Goodbye, everybody. We'll see you soon. Keep writing. Please do not stop being 
uh, musicians you. or writers because it's just so good for your soul and so good for the planet. So please don't stop. All right, thanks again. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in. To keep up with Bobby and his music, check out his website and social media profiles linked in the show notes. New episodes of The Big Break will resume in the new year, so stay tuned for our upcoming releases in January. But until then, have a great holiday, and we'll see you next time.